amazed at how God providentially conspires with a multitude of uh, circumstances to overthrow our resistance to worship. Uh, it's just amazing to me, the selection of the songs this morning and uh, the message even what I've been sharing with the young folks and through Ephesians in our class uh, and just uh, focusing on the greatness of God. Uh, even even the, the, per, the perception uh, that God has given me, I think, uh, as I look through the book of Jonah, uh, all these things have combined uh, to really move our hearts to worship. The, Brother Brian and Greg, the thought crossed my mind to just have y'all keep singing for a while. Um, is it very worshipful? So thank you guys for being obedient in that. Turn with me to, obviously, the book of Jonah, uh, continuing to work our way through that. Uh, we may conclude that uh, this evening, uh, unless the Lord bring something to mind. I left off Wednesday night really, really driving home <clears throat> the demonstration of God's mercy in Jonah's own life. Uh, I drew attention to the fact that from the belly of the fish, uh, he's rehearsing what he was praying when he was outside the belly of the fish. And to me, that's an interesting thing to look at in that text. Uh, the prayer that he's mentioning in the belly of the fish uh, was the prayer that was going up as he was sinking into the depths. He was still outside the belly of the fish and thus uh, under the penalty of death, uh, dying, uh, literally gasping for his last breath. All the while the prayers are going up and God sends mercy in the form of a fish. And from the belly of the fish, uh, he's remembering his cries for mercy, even as death was closing in. Uh, and I, I really wanted to stress that because by the end of this book, uh, I think God illustrates for Jonah uh, what he, not only what he's going to do in Nineveh, but illustrates to Jonah the larger point that, that Jonah confesses that he knows and that now others know uh, that God is a compassionate God. Long-suffering, as he says in chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah's own confession, that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and one who relents concerning calamity. God, God calls Job, Jonah to question even in the very last verse, should I not have compassion on Nineveh? And so as I've shared, the overwhelming theme of the book to me uh, is, the, is the revelation of the glorious grace and mercy of God. Uh, it's a book about God. Uh, this whole book is a book about God. Uh, and Jonah is the prophet through which this revelation is being made. Uh, I don't, we don't know a lot about Jonah. Obviously, God called him out to be the prophet, as it were, foretelling the destruction of Nineveh. Uh, but we'll touch on this in the last message. But uh, one of the interesting things about this book is that it leaves off without us ever knowing what Jonah concluded. Was God merciful? He's already admitted that. Did God's mercy and the way he displayed it and what it's displayed about the character and nature of God himself have an impact forever on the life of Jonah? We don't know because it ends abruptly. In verse 11, and we don't get to hear any uh, conclusion in regards to what all this meant to Jonah. And I think that's appropriate because that's the question before you. <clears throat> as we look through this book and as we see the mercy of God displayed and the compassionate and gracious nature of God on display here, what do you do with it? How far does it extend beyond you? And those are the questions that I think it raises. But I want to look this morning in chapter 3 uh, regarding uh, Nineveh's mercy or the quality or the character of the mercy of God as it was extended to Nineveh. Now, some of you may notice that the message of Jonah to Nineveh was simply that God was going to destroy Nineveh in 40 days. Uh, there's not an explicit appeal for a turn or for repentance. Jonah doesn't, as I've said, go to Nineveh and say, unless you turn, God will destroy the nation or the city. 
Uh, he doesn't even offer them the possibility of turning away, but there is a window there of 40 days and and maybe by the Spirit they concluded that if there is not immediate destruction, there is still at least a hope that there might be mercy. And I think that is true in this context. So as we read together, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. And now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. And then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. And when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne and laid aside his robe from him and covered himself with sackcloth and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man nor beast, herd or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we will not perish. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them and he did not do it. Father, we thank you for your word. As we've already sang this morning, how great you are. And Lord, all through your word, you reveal your greatness through many different means and through many different instruments and historical circumstances and providences abound in which your glory and your greatness is manifest. And Father, <laughs> thank you for this book of Jonah as well. And Lord, I pray that by your grace we may perceive what Jonah seems to have been so resistant to see. That your mercy is great. That you are a gracious and kind and kind God, a loving God. And that you are long-suffering and that you will relent from calamity. And so Father, we just ask that you would speak to our hearts, guide us to perceive the truth of your word. And most importantly, that through that truth, we might be able to behold more clearly your greatness and the greatness of the fountain of that mercy, Christ himself. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So just working through that text, as I said, I just wanted to think about the qualities or the character of the mercy that God is extending uh, to Nineveh. <clears throat> Let me get my dry throat cleared out here. In chapter 3, verse 1 and 2, and then 4 again, and even all the way back to chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, is the enduring or the persistent nature of that mercy. He says to Jonah, the word came to the Lord a second time to Jonah, saying, Go to Nineveh and proclaim the proclamation that I shall give you. It's an appeal, as it were, determined and, and manifested by God. Uh, Jonah's resistance... Jonah's disobedience, his attempt to fly away is not going to thwart the determination of God to send, to send a message, as it were, of condemnation and therefore mercy to Nineveh. I think one of the difficulties Jonah had was that Nineveh was indeed a wicked place. I've been reading a lot on the Assyrian Empire in general, but they were a ruthless people. Uh, they, they subjugated entire nations and other empires, not, by, not like the Greeks and Persians in many ways by <coughs> accommodating those cultures, but by shutting them down altogether. By demanding of these people obeisance, as it were, to the Assyrian way of doing things. And they were not reluctant to behead people. And then, to, and then to make a public display of that in order to strike fear into the hearts of everyone. They didn't care whether or not you believed what they did, only that you yielded to their dominance. That's it. 
And there was no form of violence off, off, off out of order for them to exercise. So it was a wicked city. But God in his eternal wisdom and according to the secret counsels of his will has determined now that a message of condemnation would go out to Nineveh with a 40-day period for them to consider what was upon them. And in that 40-day window, apparently God led them to understand that there is at least a chance that God may relent here. But my point is that no prophet who is disobedient or no, no outward circumstance will thwart God's determination to extend to a people mercy. And that, that's, that is in line with the sovereign nature of God's decrees or God's desires or God's determinations. And so there's a comfort in that as well for, for us. And there's a reminder for we who claim to be followers of Christ that we don't limit by our own disobedience or think we might limit God's extending mercy to anyone else in this world. Any nation, any people, any people who we may deem as undeserving of any mercy at all, God operates according to his own criteria, according to his own determinations and it is proven in the life of Jonah because verse chapter 3, verse 1 begins, the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Jonah doesn't get off the hook. His rebellion doesn't, doesn't push off one day what God is determined to do in the, in the life of the city, the residents of the city of Nineveh, from the least to the greatest of them. God has determined that there will be a message sent to Nineveh and it will come to pass even through the prophet he has chosen to go share the message. Jonah doesn't get off the hook. I shared already, I wonder if Jonah didn't think that if I go far enough away, even if God made me go back, by the time I get back, the 40 days will have been over and God will have to have honored his word and destroyed them anyway. So maybe he even thought he might get God over a barrel somehow by his resistance and by the distance that he traveled. Not going to happen. I feel that way in the mercy that God sent into my own life. In hindsight, in retrospect, I realize that God from the foundation of the world had chosen me in Christ Jesus and there was not a demon in hell or a, or a Christian on the earth that was going to hinder the day that the mercy came to me and the condemnation rested upon me and I sought out deliverance and found Christ. I don't believe in retrospect that, a, that a, any element in the universe could have, thank you very much, Hayden, that any element in the universe could have prevented the manifestation of that mercy and grace in my own life. And the same is true for Nineveh. Sometimes when I get to going, it, it clears out and I'm okay, but thank you for that. So it is an enduring mercy, it's an appeal. And it's not contingent upon man's willing co cooperation. God made Jonah willing, even if he didn't bring him all the way through to a fuller understanding, Jonah did go back to Nineveh. The word of the Lord came to him a second time. Notice as well that it is a directed and a deliberate mercy. Nineveh was the capital city uh, of, a, of the Assyrian Empire. There were other large cities. In fact, I looked some of those up, and some of the largest cities outside of Nineveh were Kala and Zeb and Asher. So these were massive cities as well. But for some reason, for God's own reasons, for his own counsel, he sent Jonah to the capital city of Nineveh. Perhaps the intent was that it would flow down from the capital and the king out into the entire Assyrian Empire. Certainly God forestalled Assyria's ultimate destruction or invasion of Israel. And so it's even a mercy to Israel that God is extending mercy to Nineveh. But he goes to a, it's a very direct, he doesn't say go to all the Assyrian empire. He says, go to the capital city. 
And so there is a directed mercy here. There is, a, there is a sovereign God who determines where the message or the declaration of that mercy will come to bear. And that, in fact, I think the, the outcome here indicates that God intended not only to send the message of condemnation, but to extend mercy and to provide for the repentance of the very people that would hear the message. All this is the work of God in the life of the Ninevites. Why they were chosen over the other city, I don't know. I don't know why God chose me over the man who's outside of the family of God today. I don't have a clue, but I do know this, that mercy is directed by the one from whom it flows. It is not distributed by the church or leaders in the church. They may be instruments in God's proclamation, but the Spirit of God brings, brings to the effect the mercy that is extended. It is God's determination in regards to that. Let me just say that if you've been a recipient of the mercy of God and you've recognized your need for a Savior and come to Christ, the mercy that brought about that, that in you, that response in you, was directed by God into your life. And for that reason, we ought to sing heartily, how great thou art, as we've done this morning. By the way, I was watching and looking around, and almost everybody in here was singing those words. That's true. It's true. He is great. And the fact that you are a believer today is indicative of the greatness of God and the discretion and the direction of His mercy into your life. You are saved by grace through faith. That not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is a direct and deliberate mercy to Nineveh. The instrument is to be Jonah and the proclamation of Jonah, but God has determined that Nineveh shall hear the message. Not Kala, not Zab, not Asher, not at this moment. Now it's Nineveh's time, and God has determined it to be so. It may be that this morning is your time. Maybe you're outside of Christ and maybe the message of condemnation that rested upon Nineveh has come to bear on you and maybe you feel that heavily and you feel the weightiness of that this morning. Well, it could be that God's time to extend that mercy, that saving mercy to you is this morning. We ought to always be open to that as well. It's also one of the qualities is that it had an unexpectedly effective, it was an unexpectedly perhaps effective mercy. In verses 4 and 5, it says there, then Jonah, the city, when he got to Nineveh, it was a three days walk. But it says, then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk. And he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And in verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God. And I say unexpectedly effective, it goes further, but initially it is that Jonah didn't set up a Bible study. It wasn't a month of crusade meetings. He didn't put up a tent. He didn't, he didn't go out and gather offerings to do mission work. Jonah got one day into a three-day mission, and God began to move, and the Ninevites believed in God. I, that excited me. That means mercy's gone before you. God is already at work. He calls you to go to a city that is three days walk in the circumference of the city. You get busy obeying God and you get a day into your work and God is already turning the city around. Mercy is preceding your getting there. You see what I'm saying here? And sometimes mercy is unexpectedly effective. Sometimes you can make the proclamation and there's no response whatsoever. It's not ineffective then. In fact, it serves in that moment, the message serves to even harden them more so for the disciplining hand of God later on. But in this case, Jonah goes in there with all his own thoughts about this, but dutifully obeying God to proclaim the message. And lo and behold, before you even finish the task, one day in, Nineveh believes in God. I love the simplicity of that. They believed in God. Here's the word. Here's the message. There was no, there was no apologetics course. There was, no, there was no nothing other than this simple message. Yet 40 days and God will destroy Nineveh. Well, if you can glean from that that God is to be believed in, I mean, they're wicked people. Why would they not at that moment say, yeah, sure, Jonah. Look at the nut. 
Let's look at the guy walking around. God had been working, I think, providentially prior to Jonah's arrival. And in some, in some ways, perhaps, even in the arrival of Jonah, all the events were conspiring to be exercised or utilized by the mercy of God to bring about an immediate response, an effective response to just a day's worth of preaching. And a simple message. I remember we had a professor at Fruitland and I, he would preach and I would think, man, I have never, never in my life heard such a precise, efficient proclamation of that text of Scripture. I was just stunned. I mean, it was, it was so tight and precise. And I commented afterwards along those lines, brother, I appreciate that message. I have never heard such a precise articulation of the doctrine of that text. I was, I was stunned by that. And you know what he said? He said, that's because I preached it 50 times. He's, he, he, did, he didn't preach at a church. He was a revival sort of speaker, and he got invited, and he'd go to 50 churches all over the state of North Carolina, preach the same message. And then I went, well, no wonder it was so precise. You figured out what was wasted, and you've narrowed that thing down. No wonder it's precise. Jonah didn't practice the message, and he didn't have a big one to remember. All it was but was that there is a God before whom your wickedness has arisen, and he has decreed now that you have warranted destruction. Forty days and it's on you. That's all he said. That wouldn't be hard to remember, would it? And he went one day's journey. I wondered about that. Did he stop along the way and preach or did he just keep walking slowly as, a, as the day progressed and the sun went over his head and he walked through crowds of people and at the top of his lungs he was declaring that God has decreed that Nineveh will be destroyed in 40 days. And people were saying, what are you talking about? What are you saying? Were there some conversation or dialogue? I don't think there was. I, think, I don't think Jonah cared enough to, to get into dialogue. I am, under, I am under compulsion by the sovereign God of the universe to proclaim to you one word, and that's all you're getting. I'm, I'm going through, I'm declaring only what God has said, and you deal with it. I don't think he paused for conversation or dialogue. I think he proclaimed that message and walked systematically one day's journey into Nineveh. And God was at work in those words to bring about the belief of the Ninevites, who of all people would have seemed least likely to believe anything of God. They were relishing and reveling in their wickedness, murderous perversions, all sorts of corruptions. They were thick into it. Many of the Ninevites had grown up culturally surrounded by such darkness. And for them, it was customary and expected and completely within the norms of their ideas of life in general. But here, God is at work. Mercy's quality is that it is unexpectedly effective. One simple message of impending judgment one day into his work. And the people of Nineveh believe in God. In verse 5, you can see also that it is a provocative mercy, or you might say a mercy that provokes. I've already touched on it in verse 5. The people believed God. They believed God. They believed the word that they had heard. They believed in God. And notice how that manifested itself. They called a fast and put on sackcloth. Later on it says that the king himself sits in ashes. And perhaps they did that in Nineveh as well. But those two things are interesting. They believed, they believed in God. Mercy made the message come to bear. It struck terror in their hearts. And they believed in the God whose proclamation was that they would be destroyed. And their immediate reaction upon belief was that they began to fast. Fasting at its, at its most basic level is the deprivation of the bodily, bodily, the body's desire, whether that be necessary food and water or whether that be something that is desired for comfort of the body. It is the, it is the putting away of that thing to stir in our hearts a recognition of something greater that is needed. That's what they did. That's what they did. 
They believed God. They believed God in the message of Jonah. And their immediate response upon believing was to agitate a greater belief. They put aside the things that were sustaining them and which they found comfort in and satisfied the flesh. And they abandoned all those things in the hope that it would stir their hearts to behold more fully their greater need for God. That's, by the way, do you know that's your greatest need now? Take no thought for your body, what you will wear or what you will eat or drink. There is, there is a greater need for everyone in this room. And that is the need for the things of God, for the person of Christ, for a relationship with Him. Because that secures you eternally. A full belly and clothes to wear will shield your nakedness now and to provide for your appetite until the day of your death. But after your death, clothes nor food will do you any good whatsoever. But only that thing which is most needed, which is Christ. Christ himself. If I'm going to fast, I want to, I want to agitate my fleshly desires to, to, to make myself more aware that the thing I need and the one I need most and above all of these creature comforts is God. And that's what the Ninevites began to do. And they did it because they believed in God through a simple message and through the work of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but they put on sackcloth. Obviously, you know, some of these were made out of, they say, black goat's hair, which was very coarse, or maybe even some sort of burlap or sewn material. But the whole intentions of sackcloth was to irritate the skin, deprive myself of comfort and luxury and, and, and those temporal things to, to agitate again my recognition that there is a greater comfort to be sought here. You can imagine the contrast, particularly later for the king who would have wore robes of, of, of linen and all sorts of, all sorts of fine cloths, perhaps silk, that would lay nicely upon the skin. I've got one shirt I used to have that I, I just like the material. I don't know exactly what it's made out of, but it's when you put it on, it's like you don't even have a shirt on. And then I got another shirt that's made out of this material and it's supposed to be a golf shirt. I'll tell you right now, don't go play golf in that shirt. You'll burn up. Your body don't breathe. It's like it won't let your body heat escape. And so that shirt's like sackcloth to me. It's an irritant to my skin and it scuffs on me. And when I swung the club, it would even rub your raw. But the other one was as if you didn't have anything on at all. It was completely comforted. Oh, it caressed the skin and soothed the skin. The Ninevites believed God and they, then they rejected those temporal comforts. I don't want to be comfortable. I want to be agitated here to seek a greater, more eternal comfort. That's the difference. God, they believed God. Mercy is at work. They heard the message without any hope of relief in there. But they believed God to the point to think that the 40 days might perhaps be a window. Let's, let's, let's fast and let's deprive ourselves of worldly comforts and worldly sustain that God might stir in our hearts a desire for the greater good of God Himself. And so, man, this is real. This is a real belief in God. So they believed, they put on sackcloth and they fasted. Notice as well that it is an expansive mercy in 6 through 8. You see that the word finally gets to the king. In fact, in chapter 5, it says the people believe God. They called a fast, put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least. So the, so the majority, it seems, of the population began to hear, hear the word. And they believed God and they responded in this way. But the king, now he's different. He's, he's elite. He's set apart from the people. In fact, I thought about it. in some ways, repentance potentially cost him the most. He had the most comfortable lifestyle. He had, the, he had the most to lose in a turnaround into things because surely the king had learned to profit from his conquest of the nations and from his rule of terror all over the Assyrian Empire. He had a lot to lose here. So the Bible is clear to say that the, the, the preaching of Jonah and the effects of the mercy of God went among the common people from the smallest to the greatest, but it made its way into the throne room of the king of Nineveh. And so it is an expansive mercy. And when it reached the king of Nineveh, in verse 6, he arose from his throne, got off of his throne, by the way, the, 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 the emblematic nature of that. He gets off the throne. There's, a, there's, something, there's something above me. 
I'm not getting down from my throne as the king, as it were, of the Assyrians and the king of Nineveh in the capital city. I'm not getting off my throne for anybody, but there's something happening in Nineveh and there's something greater at work than me. I'm getting down off the throne. He does that. He lays aside his robe, that thing which is indicative of his power and the elite status that he holds, and he lays it aside from himself and he covers himself with sackcloth. And sat in the ashes. All these are indicative of, of repentance. They were outward manifestations of the inward condition of the heart. These are things that he's laying aside. His power and his authority gets off the throne. All of his luxury and all that that has provided him, his comfort, he takes that off as a robe and lays it aside and replaces all those worldly comforts and power with sackcloth to remind him that there is a greater power and a greater comfort to be sought here. And the people of Nineveh are discovering that by the mercy of God and the mercy extends all the way into the throne room of the king where it would be most likely not to have had any effect and it's having an effect you think God by the way can't send that kind of revival and mercy into our nation's capital oh I pray that he would you think he couldn't exercise that kind of mercy to our adversaries geopolitically, whoever they may be at any given time? Couldn't God do that? Do we want him to do that? Or would we sometimes, like Jonah, prefer that he just wipe them out and take them out of the way or, or being a threat to us altogether? After all, we're America, God's people. That kind of, that kind of ideology is diminishing of the glory of God and exalting of the glory of a nation. Here, there's a king who gets off his throne in the presence of a greater eternal power at work in his own city, bringing about turning wicked men away from their lives, the way they had lived their lives. So it is an expansive mercy. It reaches to the king, but also it results in a nationwide or a citywide proclamation. You see that as well. So the king having acted in this way himself, now issues a proclamation. Notice, he doesn't issue a proclamation and remain on the throne. He doesn't say, well, we don't want God to destroy the city. You people better repent. No, you are the one in authority. All that's happening under your authority, you bear responsibility for. So the king comes off his throne, lays aside his robe, puts upon himself the sackcloth and ashes, and then issues the proclamation to all the people, expanding it out throughout the entire capital now. And notice the exaggerated nature of this. It is purpose-wide to all the city. And it said in the proclamation in Nineveh by the decree of the king and and. and and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. Both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth and let men call on God earnestly that each man may turn from his evil ways. I think the exaggeration was indicative of the, of the urgency the king felt. Not just the men of Nineveh. All of Nineveh is captured in this wickedness. Let, let the beast, as it were, fast. Don't let them eat or drink. Put sackcloth on the beast who already had sackcloth. They, were, they already had coarse hair, but he says, no, cover that. I want, the, I want the message to be that the entirety of the city and all that it has depended upon is at this moment subject to the sovereign God of the universe whom Joe, Jonah has proclaimed to us that's indicative of how of the depth of what the king and the people of Nineveh were experiencing there and that's a testimony to the power of the grace of God and the mercy of God at work in Nineveh and we learn later that Joe don't like that and you may not like that but that's the power of the mercy of God. It brings kings off of their thrones and it, and it presses them to act in ways that are, that are extreme. I mean, if you thought that your city was going to be destroyed in 40 days and there was anything that you could do, wouldn't you have the animals fasting too? Because if it's useless and God does destroy, they're all going to die anyway and we're all going to be under this destruction. So by all means, cover everything in the city with sackcloth. And don't anybody drink or give their animals anything to drink or eat until we see what God may do in this moment. It's mercy 
is moving the king and he's moving the people to yield to this proclamation as well. At this point, I wouldn't think the people were worried about the king enforcing something they didn't want to do. They were wholeheartedly in agreement. They were doing the same thing and it finally reached him as though he was the first in line. He makes a proclamation like he was the first in line. He's the last in line. God went from the least in the kingdom right up to the throne and the proclamation went out and God's mercy was operating in that and it brought even the king himself the most exalted in the city, to this humbled place. So it is an expansive mercy reaching even to that level. I love this, but in verses 8 and 9, you see that it is a transformative mercy as well. I love what the king says here. Let men call on God earnestly. Why are we doing all this? Let him call on God earnestly. That so that each man may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his, in his hands. To me, the transformative nature of the mercy of God here is that once one day earlier, wicked men to the core are calling upon God. Earnestly. This is not fake. This is not contrived. This is not, this is not some rigid institutionalized thing that they ought to be doing. They didn't adopt their own religious practices and, and employ those hoping they would be pleasing to God. These people were turning from their wicked ways. These wicked men were now praying earnestly to God. That's mercy. That's mercy. Wicked men don't pray earnestly to God apart from mercy. Wicked men employ everything they have to try to cajole God into accommodating their lustful desires, but they don't pray earnestly to God from this place of wickedness. This is a complete 180 degree, degree difference in the people of Nineveh. They, these once wicked people were now calling upon God. And notice he says there, with earnestness. They were doing so with earnestness. I love the word earnest. There are words in the Bible and words in vocabulary in general that just say things to me. Earnestness. This is not, this is not, this is not some contrived again prayer. This is not some rote prayer that they're reciting and hoping God through the very reciting of the prayer will give his blessing. This is earnest, genuine in the fear of God Almighty and prayer that is being erupting now out of a heart that realizes the condemnation that it is under. And it is earnest, wicked men now earnestly seeking God. That's mercy. That's the nature of the mercy that was extended to Nineveh. It's transformative also in that God is seen now as the enabler of their turning. You've got to catch this language, but he says, Let men call on God earnestly that each may turn from his wicked ways and from the violence which is in his hands. It seems to me that they are, the king is acknowledging here in his proclamation that necessary to their forsaking their wickedness is the God upon whom they're calling. Let every man earnestly call upon God so that we might turn away from this. Not that we might not be destroyed, but that we may turn from our sin. Do you realize that mercy? Anybody would have wanted, if they thought this God was capable of destroying them, they would pray earnestly that God would not destroy us. He doesn't say that. Pray earnestly, every one of you in Nineveh, pray earnestly that God would be enabled, the, the enabler of us to turn now away from our sin and the violence that it is in our hands. It is so ingrained in them as a nature that they understand something instinctively in, under the mercy of God that they need God to turn away and to abandon those things forever, lest they be destroyed. So it's transformative in that God is now recognized as the very enabler of their turning. Notice as well it's transformative in that the corporate turning away of Nineveh from sin involves the turning away of every individual. You notice in that passage he said each man. Let each man pray earnestly that God might provide for his turning away from his sins. I think about that all the while. We, we're always talking as Christians about God send revival to this nation. What if God sent us a message like this and a decree went out from the President of the United States and it said, stop telling God to send revival to the Capitol. You, 
You turn away from your violence. You earnestly seek God that He might enable you to forsake your individual sins because corporations are made up of individuals. A corporation can't repent. Individuals in the corporation can shape the corporation by their repentance. Listen, this morning, the mercy of God goes out to us individually who make up the body of Christ locally at Diamond Hill. And the message is, God, help us to turn and to forsake our wickedness and our sinfulness. That's every one of our responsibility. You remember the whole nation of Israel was defeated in battle because one man, Achan, violated the ban. He took something, hid it away, and the whole nation went out into battle trusting that God would provide victory, and they fell before the enemy, and they cried out, What has happened? God has abandoned us. And the, and the verdict comes back, no, one of you has been dishonest before God. You have taken that thing which God hath forbanded. And it's just one of us, God. How come the whole nation falls in battle over one? Because the nation of Israel is made up of individual men. And not a single one of those men can shirk the responsibility of his own earnest appeal to God that he might turn from his sins. And turn from his wicked ways. And if enough of the men in that corporation or that city do that, then God would relent in his calamity forecasted for that city. And may it be the same in our nation today. Notice again, similar to the earlier with verse 9, but it is, so, it is a sovereign mercy. By that I mean discretionary. It is granted by God alone as he chooses according to his own counsel. I love here that the king goes to these links and he doesn't say, for I am sure that if we do this, God will relent. He doesn't say that. He says, who knows? Who knows? Who knows, God may turn and relent and withdraw His burning anger so that we will not perish. But if He doesn't, it's in the counsel of the sovereign God whose grace it is and who distributes it and directs it according to His own divine purposes. Uh, we are doing all that we can do and we are appealing to God that He may crush our hearts and kill in us this desire for our sinful ways. And it may be that in all of that, who knows, He may show mercy, uh, the mercy of deliverance here. He may. That's a recognition that the mercy belongs to God. It flows from the fountainhead of Christ, which I'll end here with, but it flows from that fountainhead, and it is directed where, wheresoever He willeth. And the king in this, in this moment in Nineveh, in this belief in God and in the power of the mercy of God at work in Nineveh, seems to have instinctively revealed to them that it is the mercy of God to be distributed as He wills, and we are subject to the sovereign will of God Almighty. Oh God, may You turn from this, but we are not, we don't hold You over some Justice by our works that you are bound now to turn away from this calamity. It is still your calamity. You have pronounced the judgment and if it comes there is no injustice with God. But who knows? Maybe, maybe His mercy will deliver us. I don't know. When I read that I just meditated on that for a good while and I thought the authenticity of that. Everything that they're doing, they see no merit in that at all. They're not sitting in ashes and putting on sackcloth and, and fasting because they think that somehow it might achieve some merit and God will see the merit of it and the value of it and say, well, maybe the Ninevites aren't as bad as I thought they were. I will relent. He, they're doing all this out of earnestness and by the operation of mercy in the city of Nineveh. And they are, even at that point, subjecting themselves to the sovereign will of the God who provided the mercy. That's real. That's authentic. That's not a contrived repentance. Sometimes I think we, we, we feel like if we, if we add up all this stuff together, God will see it and somehow be impressed and realize that we're not quite as bad and therefore remove His heavy hand of discipline. God will bring that hand of discipline sometimes whenever you give up those things but still hold on to the pride that produced them to start with. That's what He's extinguishing in you. Not your habits that are born out of those, but the root that produced that fruit in your life. And so He may not. 
And so when we've done all of our repenting and sought God earnestly with all of our heart, even in those moments, we ought to think, I think, in the way that he is. Who knows, perhaps God might be merciful to deliver me from this. Nevertheless, he is to be obeyed and he is to be honored for he is God. And if there is mercy to come at all, it will come from him and by his, by his grace into our lives. And finally, it is a productive mercy. I thought about Romans 2, 4, where Paul talks about the hypocrisy there of those. But he says, do you not know that it is the kindness of God that leads you to repentance? You see that in verse 10 as well in the conclusion. When God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked ways, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring forth upon him, and he did not do it. He did not do it. Some people would take that passage and say, well, that proves that prayer changes things. And here's my point. Were it not mercy coming into Nineveh, they wouldn't have prayed this way. They wouldn't have done these deeds. It wouldn't have produced this fruit in their lives. And so the God who relents also sends the mercy to change the people upon the contingency which he said he would relent or which he intended to be relenting here. So there is no calling into question now the sovereign choices of God Almighty in that passage. The God who relents is also the God who sent the mercy that shaped the people and caused them to produce the works that became the catalyst for God's relenting. It is God's grace and mercy at work in the midst of this situation. I had written this in my notes here, but this, mercy's conclusions was God was uh, was the God's relenting. That was the conclusion of the mercy. We read this and we say, all this happened and then God relented in regards to destruction. And that's the mercy. No, that's the conclusion of the mercy. The mercy began when God interrupted the prophet in his life and said, go tell Nineveh 40 days and they're going to be destroyed. That was the beginning of the mercy. And then the prophet refused to act upon that and mercy continued to that in the life of Jonah to bring Jonah back to go to Nineveh to declare the message of God's, of God's pending judgment upon Nineveh. So mercy was at work from the very beginning unfolding even from the secret counsels of God from eternity was unfolding and the day that God saw their deeds and relented wasn't the mercy, it was the completion or the conclusion of the mercy. The mercy had produced that outcome. The same as in our life. It's not when God delivers us that it's a mercy. It is indeed a mercy, but the mercy doesn't begin with the deliverance. The mercy begins with all that God's done to bring us to the place to trust in God through which He does deliver us. That's the conclusion. That's what mercy brought about. And that's what I think Jonah is an understanding here. And I think sometimes what we don't understand, mercy is at work now bringing about the thing that is coming in your regards. The thing you may say is deliverance. Uh, you call that deliverance. But the deliverance is underway already when mercy is at work because it's preparing the one to be delivered. It's a deliverance. It's a merciful deliverance. And it is a productive mercy. And I have to end with this thought about this mercy, that its fountain is Christ. All the, all the parallels and portrayals that are attached to Jonah's experience, his, his willingly subjecting himself to death to save the men of the sailors upon that ship, his willingness to be cast into the sea, his dying as it were and his sinking down into the depths, his being preserved in death in the belly of a well and ultimately his resurrection as he spit back upon the shell and then Jesus quoting Jonah's experience three days and three nights in the belly of the fish. All these parallels I think were to communicate not only to Jonah in prophetic form but by, by Jesus' own words that the very fountain of the mercy at work in your presence Jonah is Christ and your experience has mirrored the way that mercy will be brought and the mercy going out to Nineveh now was the mercy that is purchased by the shedding blood of Christ who in God's economy was crucified from the foundation of the world and that mercy being distributed according to the discretion of God and from the fountain of Christ himself Jonah 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 will you not Will you not exalt the fountain of mercy? 
when God extends it in places that you didn't expect. That sets the stage for what we'll share tonight from chapter 4 because it really brings it home. So I just want you to think this morning about the nature and the quality of the mercy of God. We're so, I don't know what it is, I guess just our, our desire for orderly lives that we can predict or predictability or some security in that. But sometimes I think we, we minimize things into categories and by doing so we diminish the exceeding glory of those things. And mercy seems to me to be one of those. It's funny because we love it. We love the fullness of it in our own lives. Well, we're just human. Thank God he's merciful. We cite his mercy all the time when it comes to our, our hardness of heart and our stubbornness. But boy, if God extends that to somebody that has offended us deeply and has lived a whole life of wickedness and who by just rewards deserves every condemnation that God could heap upon them and we withhold it from that, it tells me that we don't know the quality of the mercy. We don't know the cost. We don't think about the cost. Because it took the same Christ's blood for the mercy to flow to your life as it did to the child molester and to the murderer and to the thief and to the corrupt politician and to the tyrant ruling a nation with a heavy hand. If any are to be saved, it will be from the same fountain, the mercy of Christ, purchased by the death of Christ on our behalf and directed to us by the sovereign hand of God Almighty. We sang right this morning, how great thou art. When I, when I behold all your wonders, I am distruck, dumbfounded, to, to even weigh into the depth and the breadth and the expanse of the glory of God on display and particularly focused in the work of Christ upon the cross. He is a God to be feared and a God to be devoting our lives to. Stand with me this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for the quality and the character, the nature of mercy displayed in the, the events in Jonah's life and the life of Nineveh. We know, Lord, that another generation in Nineveh turned their hearts against you and hardened their hearts and disregarded the mercy that they had received and that you even used them instrumentally to bring your disciplining hand upon your people. So, Father, I pray that we will not leave this place this morning <clears throat> rejecting that mercy or hardening our hearts to the mercy of your word as it's proclaimed. But I pray that we might respond as the Ninevites did, that your spirit itself might bring that mercy to bear to us in a way that would produce in us earnest seeking of you and crying out to you for help to, to extinguish in our hearts this fleshly desires for sin and for wickedness and all sorts of evil. And Lord, that we might escape in Christ the certain condemnation due us outside of him. So in these moments, Father, of consideration by your people, Lord, I pray that you would speak to us by your truth, by your spirit, and that we might respond in ways that honor Christ. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.